Good evening. Welcome to Uni Church. Great to be with you all this evening. My name is Lachlan, one of the pastors here. Uh, looking forward to delving into what is a big and weighty topic this evening as we continue this summer series of questions that our community has had uh, as they've considered if they were God, what would they change? A number of people said to us, look, if I was God, I'd do away with the inequality in the world. I'd make sure that everyone had enough to live on and everyone had the money that they needed. So the question is, why is God not doing that? And what is God doing? So I'm looking forward to delving into that with you tonight. There's an outline in the outlines that you would have received on the way in, space for you to take notes that you might consider. Uh, there'll also be question time later this evening as we wrap up from seeing what God has to say in his word. So if you've got questions as we go through, flick those through on the text line and we'll have a chance to think further about those a bit later on. But let me start by praying, asking God to help us as we consider this topic this evening. Let's pray. Father, we come here tonight with honest hearts. We want to understand. We look around at the world in all sorts of pain. We want to see your goodness in the midst of that. So please tonight, would you teach us? Would you show us yourself, show us your character as we see your plans and your deeds? Please would it be the case that we walk away from here tonight in wonder, bowing before you in your wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. What is God doing about poverty and inequality? Why are there some people in the world who can live so comfortably, live in luxury, while so many others do it tough? Uh, There might well be some of you here tonight for whom this is not just a theoretical question. Perhaps you're one of the ones that's in our city sleeping in your car struggling to know where the next meal is going to come from, struggling to have enough clothes to get you through the cold months of winter. And perhaps you're here this evening wondering, does God even see me? Does he care about me? There'll be others here tonight for whom you've, you've kind of seen or you've experienced poverty around the world, and it's led you to conclude that obviously the Christian God can't exist. If the Christian God was there, then he would have brought an end to this. That's what you would do if you were God. And so you're thinking, well, if God hasn't done that, then he must not be there. And there might be others amongst us tonight. And for you, this just really isn't a question you've thought about before. You've not seen poverty. You're living quite comfortably. You don't know much about it. It's not troubling you. All sorts of things might have brought us here tonight to consider this question. And so I want to state clearly at the outset that poverty is a serious issue. We need to be concerned about it. There there are people in our world who lack the basic human needs of food, clean and safe drinking water, shelter. Consider the stats up on the screen. Something like 767 million people around the world are living in extreme poverty which means that they're living on less than $2.60 New Zealand a day, or about $18 a week. Something like 20,000 children are dying each day due to the poverty in which they live. 20,000 every day. That's a lot. It's a big, serious problem. It's not all bad news. There's a stat that's not up there on the screen, but back in 1990... The number of people living in extreme poverty was 1.85 billion. 
So more than a billion people have been lifted above that line in the last 27 years. It's down now to 767 billion, 667 million, not billion. Uh, but that's still a substantial number. We want to be thankful for the progress that we've made as a world, but there's a long way to go to eradicate poverty altogether. The problem of poverty might be worst in sub-Saharan Africa, but it is a problem here in New Zealand as well, as that bottom stat shows you. Based on New Zealand's relative poverty line, around 685,000 people in our country are living in poverty. And that includes around 220,000 children. That's a substantial proportion of our country. So poverty is serious. Locally, it's serious. Globally, it's serious. What is God doing? Well, the answer we get from God is we consider his word to us in the Bible tonight. Actually, I want to say that the Bible is the place to go if you want to know what God is doing in the world. Don't go sit in a quiet corner and kind of wait for some word or revelation to come to you. Don't kind of observe out in the world and try to deduce your own conclusion from what you see. Come to the Bible because God has told us what his plans are. He's made them clear to us as we read his word, which is what the Bible is to us. And the Bible tells us God tells us in the Bible that he most definitely sees the poor. He loves the poor. And he will bring an end to their material poverty. That's God's plan. That's what he's doing. He will bring an ultimate solution to poverty. We're going to see that ultimate solution tonight. We're also going to see God's present provision. While we wait for the ultimate solution to come about, God has a present provision for the alleviation of poverty. In between those two things, we're going to grapple with the truth that there's something even more troubling than material poverty going on in the world. An even bigger problem. You've seen the seriousness of material poverty, but that points us to something even more serious that we'll call our spiritual poverty. And solving our spiritual poverty is the key to God's plan. So if you wanted to write down a line on your outline that we'll be unpacking tonight, here's the the big message that we'll be working through. God will end material poverty by providing for our spiritual poverty. God will end material poverty by providing for our spiritual poverty. So let's start by looking at God's ultimate solution for ending material poverty. We're going to take a slightly long route to answer that question. We're going to go from the first page of Bible to the last page journeying through the whole history of God's action in the world, but I trust you'll find it a worthwhile journey as we get to know who God is throughout this story. Uh, Don't feel like you need to flick to every page in the Bible. Verses will be up on the screen. You can flick there if you want. Make sure that what I'm saying is what's in there, Uh, but also you could just jot them down and look them up later on if there's something that particularly sparks your interest. As we come to the first page of the Bible, the story starts with God creating God made everything, including humanity, male and female. And God made humanity to rule over the earth under his rule. So have a listen to how good this world was in Genesis 1. God also said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This food will be for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
This is a good world that God has created, a world with no poverty, where humanity has easy access to sufficient food and water. God created a good world. And then humanity stuffed it up. So the first humans didn't like the idea of anyone else ruling over them. They wanted to rule themselves. We're much the same, aren't we? When someone tells you what to do, uh, your first thought probably is, who are you to tell me what to do? I'll do what I like, thank you. Now, I might like what you've told me to do, and so in that case, I'll follow it. But if I don't like it, then I won't follow it. Uh, We like to rule ourselves. And since the beginning, that has been the heart of humanity, defying God, taking the law into our own hands. And the result is a world full of conflict. Conflicts between humans, like we heard about last week, considering war in the world. But conflict as well between humans and the earth in which we live. So in Genesis 3, we find this. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. So the quest for food has now become difficult and painful, requires hard work. And that's the story of humanity down until today, open rebellion against God in a world that has now become hostile towards humanity, a world of famines and floods, of droughts and storms, bugs, plagues, a world that features poverty. The story could have ended here, but God in his love has turned the story around. He hasn't just left us in our open rebellion against him. He hasn't just wiped us out as he justly could. God in his love turned the story around. And the first step in his plan was to set up kind of extended object lesson, an example that we could learn from. And he did that with the nation of Israel. So out of all the nations of the world, God chose one particular nation that he would be especially generous to. It wasn't that they deserved it more than anyone else. God just chose them and made an example for the rest of us to observe. He constituted them as his people and he gave them his law. That was one of the things that made Israel as a nation so special. God had given them generously his law and instruction. And within this law that God gave to Israel, we see some amazing provisions for the poor. It points us to God's character, who he is, as one who loves the poor and looks after them. So have a look at this example from Exodus 22. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me, and I'll certainly hear their cry. My anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows, and your children fatherless. We know, don't we, the financial difficulty that's placed on the widow and the orphan, the fatherless. Uh, Particularly in less developed societies where the chief form of income is through manual labor, in an agricultural society where hard work is the way to form an income, that makes the, the widowed woman and the orphaned child particularly vulnerable. But what we see here in this law is that God hears their cry and God promises retribution against any who mistreat them. And the law goes on. Verse 25, if you lend money to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a money lender to him. You must not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, return it to him before sunset, for it's his only covering. It's the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? 
And if he cries out to me, I will listen because I am compassionate. So God makes clear that within Israel, you're not to get rich by exploiting other people. Lend money to the poor and then give them time to pay it back without pressuring them for interest. The collateral that it talks about, that's like if you go somewhere and you want to borrow a key, you have to leave them your driver's license or something like that. If someone's leaving their cloak, get it back to them by night time so that they've got enough warmth to sleep in. God's law is good. When the poor cry out to God, he listens, for he is compassionate. He's starting to see the character of God just from these three small laws. God is one who loves the poor, who loves the needy. He was using Israel as an example to show that love. If we flick to the next book of the law, Leviticus, we see the same theme in Leviticus 19. God instructs the Israelites there, when you reap the harvest of your land, you're not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You must not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the foreign resident. I am Yahweh your God. Within this example nation, Israel, no one was to go hungry. No one was to go hungry among God's people. There was food for everyone. The person who had the abundant crop wasn't to collect it all up and store it for next year. They were to let others around them collect from their field so that everyone had enough food. That is the character of Yahweh, our God. If we go to yet another law book, Deuteronomy 15, we find God setting up what is quite a remarkable system of every seven years resetting the credit history. Uh, Have a look in Deuteronomy 15. If there is a poor person among you, you must not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Instead, you are to open your hand to him and freely loan him enough for whatever need he has. Be careful that there isn't this wicked thought in your heart. The seventh year, the year of cancelling debts, is near, and you are stingy toward your poor brother and give him nothing. He will cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty. See, having a reset of the credit history, to some people, that sounds like a great idea. You're in debt, and you're like, brilliant, I want out of that debt. Uh, To others, you're like, but people owe me money. What's going to happen if they don't have to pay it back? And God's saying in the law amongst Israel, just because this is being reset, that's not a reason not to lend money. Don't be stingy, still lend to them, even if they're not going to be able to pay you back because the the credit's going to be reset. And this really is quite a, a wonderful and clear way within Israel to avoid generational poverty, to break the poverty cycle that so many are trapped in today. If every seven years there's a, a clear way out, a wonderful provision from God within this example nation of Israel. So you're seeing from these few examples of God's law, two things. Firstly, we see quite clearly that God cares for the poor. There's no doubt about it. His character shines through in all of those laws. It's God's character to be concerned for everyone. He hears the cries of the needy. He sees them provided for. But the second thing we see, and this is vital to pick up, God's provision for the poor requires other people to be generous. God doesn't sidestep humanity in providing. Instead, the way he provides for the poor is by instructing his people to look after one another. For the poor to have their provision, people need to give. Now, this is where things went wrong for Israel. As the object lesson for what all of us as humanity are like, Israel failed to follow God's law. 
we hit the second act of God's story in history and we find the prophets of Israel berating them for their rebellion against God. See, like the rest of us, they put their own interests above the interests of others time and time again. One of the key elements of Israel's rebellion against God was their mistreatment of the poor. So Amos 2 will say this, The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and block the path of the needy. God sees. God berates. God rebukes Israel for failing to follow his law. Again in Isaiah 10. Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial and to deprive the afflicted among my people of justice so that widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. Within Israel, there's a failure to follow God's law and instead people were taking advantage of the vulnerable, not caring for them. Now, what I want you to notice from Isaiah 10 as well uh, is that it's not the case that God doesn't recognize, I know double negative there, but bear with me, uh, it's not the case that God doesn't recognize some people have ended up in poverty due to their laziness. Proverbs warns Israel that if people don't work, then they won't eat. But what we see here in Isaiah 10 is that we're naive if we think everyone who is in poverty can somehow be blamed themselves for getting themselves into that state. That's a naive view. What God recognizes here is the truth on the whole, that the issue of poverty comes about not because individuals have worked themselves into poverty, but because of human selfishness and greed from society around. In Isaiah 10, it was those who were enacting the crooked statutes, writing oppressive laws. Individual greed has given rise to systemic corruption, legal frameworks that perpetuate the poverty cycle, sinking the poorest into the ground with no hope. God sees. God cares for the poor and the needy. He sees the inequality brought about by the greediness of human hearts. He sees those who long for their own comfort, even if it's at the expense of others. God sees. God cares. And so while the prophets are rebuking Israel for this failure to keep God's law, at the same time they're promising a time when God will bring an end to this poverty. They're promising a time when a king will come, a king who is not corrupt like these leaders in Isaiah 10, a king who is not self-seeking, a king who will initiate justice. Psalm 72 paints the picture of this type of king. It's a wonderful psalm. Do look up the rest of the psalm later on. We're just picking out a few verses from it. Psalm 72 says this, God, give your justice to the king and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people and the hills righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted among the people, help the poor and crush the oppressor. For he will rescue the poor who cry out and the afflicted who have no helper. He will have pity on the poor and helpless and save the lives of the poor. He will redeem them from oppression and violence for their lives are precious in his sight. That sounds like a pretty good king to have, one who does all of that. And that's what Israel's king was always meant to be like, but king after king failed to act that way 
And so God promised that he would send one final king, a king whose kingdom would never end, a king who would truly live out, Psalm 72. A king who on the one hand would rescue the poor and provide for them with prosperity, and who on the other hand would crush those who have oppressed the poor. Salvation and judgment. The two have to go hand in hand. Now this is one of the many promises that God has kept in Jesus. As we fast forward to the New Testament, the books of the Bible written after Jesus was alive on earth, uh, we find in Luke's Gospel, Jesus, at the start of his public ministry, reading a similar promise about this king that comes from Isaiah 61. So in Luke chapter 4, and listen in to what happens with Jesus on this day. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus is God's promised king. Jesus comes with good news for the poor. News that extends beyond the bounds of Israel. That time of God having them as the example nation has now reached its end. They've set up the example and now God's acting for the good of the whole world, for all people everywhere. And Jesus comes with good news that whatever people's current circumstances, if they come to him, if they come to Jesus, they can have incredible riches. If they honour Jesus as their king, submit to him as their king, then he's going to lead them into a place where they'll never need to worry about food ever again. We get a description of the good news that Jesus offers towards the last page of your Bible, Revelation 22. It comes there as part of a broader description of what Jesus' kingdom will one day be like. Then he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the broad street of the city. The tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The wonderful creation that we heard about back at the start of the story in Genesis 1, the good creation where there was no poverty. You see here in Revelation 22, God's bringing back an even better version of that. He's taking away the curse that resulted from our rebellion against him. Now the earth will not be hostile towards humanity. It'll be producing its fruit every month. No longer any curse. Through Jesus, God will bring salvation. He'll bring an end to material poverty and it's going to be wonderful. I hope as you hear that description in Revelation 22, yes, it's some odd imagery, but what Jesus is bringing about will be fantastic. Ample provision as much as you could need. It's going to be a wonderful kingdom under Jesus as king. That's the ultimate end, God's solution to poverty. But it's not here yet. It lies still in the future. And I want to caution us tonight, don't, please don't ever believe Christians that tell you God promises you prosperity now. He doesn't. Uh, God's promising you something that's actually far better than that. 
God's promising you riches that are better than any material wealth you could have now, an inheritance that nothing can take away. God's promise is not for prosperity now, but for a, a new creation where there'll be no sinful inequality. God's ultimate solution for poverty lies in the future. It lies in the future because in order for that ultimate world to come about, remember what we saw about the king in Psalm 72, there needs to be salvation, but also judgment. There needs to be the judgment of all those who have oppressed the poor, all those who have withheld generosity from the poor. And friends, this is where we start to see that we actually have a far, far bigger problem than any material poverty. Far bigger problem. Jesus, as God's king, he is alive today. And he's coming back as the perfect judge. The judge who has seen all of our actions throughout all of our lives. The judge who has seen not just our actions, but also our thoughts, our motives. As that judge, Jesus will justly punish all who have greedily, selfishly pushed others down in an effort to further themselves. Now, is that you? I know it's me. I, by my purchases of food and clothing, I've failed to pay fair wages to the workers who produced those items. I, when asked to give to someone in need, have decided that my desire for comfort outweighs their need. Now, I don't say those things proudly. I'm not boasting that that's what I'm like. I, I'm saying that as a guilty man who knows that before Jesus as judge, I deserve to be pronounced guilty. And I dare say all of us today are guilty of this same charge. No matter how much money you have or don't have, no matter how far above or below the poverty line you are, all of us have hearts that are at times greedy and selfish, don't we? And perhaps this isn't the charge that most naturally sticks out to you. I suspect it is there in your heart as you search deep enough. But even if it's not on this charge of greed and selfishness in withholding from the poor, before Jesus as judge, all of your life will be laid bare. And all of humanity stands guilty of rebellion against God of defiance against his rightful rule as we seek to live lives our own way. We're all guilty. Now, fascinatingly, when the Bible picks up this idea of our guilt, there's a place where it uses the language of poverty to describe what we like. Have a look at Revelation 3. Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing, And you don't know that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him and he with me. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. That is a helpless person, right? And that's describing all of us. As we head straight towards the just judgment of God with no defense, just our blatant guilt wretched, 
pitiful, poor, blind and naked. And today as you sit here, as you hear that, I wonder if God's knocking on your door. What he says in verse 20, he's standing there knocking. Perhaps in your heart right now, God is convicting you, probing you, and your conscience tells you that you are guilty before him. Perhaps you've been trying to say like verse 17, no, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I have everything I need. Not in terms of material wealth, but saying that you're self-sufficient, that you don't need God. That's a lie, and perhaps tonight God is pricking and probing your heart, showing you your guilt. Don't run away from that feeling. I'm not better than you. I'm just as guilty, if not more so. And I want you to hear Jesus' voice tonight, because you won't hear it if you run away from the feeling of guilt. Whether you're materially rich or poor, hear Jesus' voice and turn to him asking for forgiveness. That's what he wants here, verse 19. He's rebuking and disciplining you because he loves you. Be committed and repent. Turn from your sin and turn back to God. That's all repent means. Turn back to Jesus. Acknowledge that he is king. Submit to him. And notice what God is offering if you will do that. Verse 18. Buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not exposed. Ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. All of those are symbols for the forgiveness that God is willing to extend towards you. Not something that you have to earn. God's standing at the door ready to give it all to you. He wants you to take the handout. The only thing that will stop you is if you cling to your prideful declaration, no, no, I've got everything I need. I don't need God. Tonight, acknowledge that Jesus is king. Submit to him. All of your guilt will be wiped clean. I hope you can see that our spiritual poverty, our guilt before God, it's a far bigger problem than the material poverty that pervades our world. Indeed, what we can see is that it's our selfish hearts that are the major cause of the material poverty that's throughout our world. Jesus, God's King, He comes with judgment and with salvation. For those who turn to Jesus as king, wonderful results come. Material wealth diminishes in its importance. There's a new power to endure through poverty. Once this bigger issue of spiritual poverty is dealt with, we get this sure hope of future riches. This promise that we've seen of a new creation where you'll never be in need. A promise that death can't even take away. Even if your poverty gets to the point where you die of hunger, death cannot take away this promise of eternal riches with God. And then alongside that, there's the certainty that whatever life throws at you, you have God alongside you. A God who sees your struggle, a God who cares. A God who sees the people who are oppressing and taking advantage of you. And a God who will hold them to account coming to Jesus, asking him to deal with your spiritual poverty, opens up these wonderful benefits. And this is how Christians can say things like we find Paul saying in Philippians 4. I know both how to have a little and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Isn't it wonderful to be able to say that? We find again in 2 Corinthians 6, 
Hopefully we can get this up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 6. As God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything, by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardship, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labours, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger. As unknown yet recognised. As dying and look, we live. As being disciplined yet not killed. As grieving yet always rejoicing. As poor yet enriching many. As having nothing yet possessing everything. Wonderful to be able to declare something like that. To be at the point where you may have no material possessions at all and yet say, I have everything because I have Jesus. Keep in mind as we look at this that we serve in Jesus a king who himself had no earthly possessions, who had no home in which to sleep, a king who died naked with nothing despised by society. And yet through that process, Jesus has now risen and he is the heir of all creation. And he's offering us a share with him in that inheritance. Man, we have such power to endure once we know that our spiritual poverty has been dealt with. And this is actually the key to God's present provision for alleviating poverty and inequality. We've seen his ultimate solution. He will end poverty one day when Jesus returns as judge. That's pointed us to the bigger problem of our spiritual poverty that is dealt with in Christ. And now having dealt with that, He's brought about a present provision to alleviate poverty and inequality through the church. As Christians, we don't now just sit back and wait idly for Jesus to return. The church, the community of God's people who have recognized their spiritual poverty, turn to Jesus for forgiveness. We are called to reflect God's character as we live in this world. So when we see inequality and poverty... It's right that we ask, well, what can we do? It's right that we as Christians share the heart of our God who sees and who cares. Now, there might be limitations on what we can humanly achieve. But I think it's right that we strive towards ending extreme poverty. That should always be our desire and goal, longing for Jesus to return when we know that it will happen. But in the meanwhile, while we wait out of hearts that deeply care, striving towards an end to poverty. I want to say that certainly within the church, there should be no one living without the basics of food and clothing. In Luke 12, which was read for us earlier, Jesus instructs his followers not to be worried about their food and clothing. God knows they need these things. The contrast of worrying about them, Jesus says, we should sell our possessions and give to the poor. And we have power to do that because we know that we have inexhaustible treasure in heaven. That frees us up to go, okay, I don't need to store up my big barn now. I can give away. I'm free. And amongst the early church, this is what happened. When we look throughout the book of Acts, we find early on in Acts 4, for instance, that among the early Christians, there wasn't a needy person. People were selling their lands and their houses and the proceeds were distributed to cover everyone's basic needs. That doesn't mean that that's what we should be doing today. The economic system in which we live is very different from first century Israel. We need to think through how we can live this out as Christians today. But the the aim should be the same. That amongst us as a church, there should be no one that lacks food and clothing. 
So the laws that we read earlier from the Old Testament, as Christians, we don't sit under them as law anymore. But the spirit of the law, insofar as that reflects the character of God, we're still called to live that out. So we treat others as Christ treated us. We put others' needs above our comforts. Now, I don't think we can just limit this to the local church. That should be our starting point as we seek to make sure that no one amongst us as a local church has any particular need for food and clothing. But we can't just limit it to us. Paul spent a good portion of his ministry collecting funds from different churches to send back to Jerusalem where Christians there were in financial need. And so we are called to support our brothers and sisters, our Christian brothers and sisters who are in extreme poverty in sub-Saharan Africa. If there are brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to be helping them to have food and clothing. And there are organizations like Tear Fund that enable you to do this through child sponsorship. Or there might be other one-off funds that come up when there's a particular uh, crisis in a nation, when there's a particular earthquake or famine that we can give to support our Christian brothers and sisters there. We have to help. I want to say again, there might be the odd person who tries to take advantage of the support that the church is offering and they grow lazy and stop working. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10 instructs, if anyone's not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. But that's not the majority of people. So let's not use that as an excuse to hide behind and say, well, no, I'm not going to give because people just need to work. Work is not going to end the poverty cycle. The majority of people are either willing to work or unable to work or unable to draw enough income from work to meet their needs. People need our support. And this kind of support, it doesn't stop at the bounds of church. It starts with the local church, continues to the global church, but it continues to every human. For everyone's our neighbour. As we start, though, to consider those outside the church, we need to remember what the biggest problem actually is. Because it can be so easy to start getting caught up on the material needs of people across the globe. We need to remember to see the spiritual need. When poverty seems to trump the message of the gospel, then we're seeing a thinness of our faith. We're not not actually believing the gospel through and through. When people's material need outweighs their spiritual need, we're exposing how sold out we've become to materialism. To think that material need is a bigger problem than sin. Caring for others, it it represents the gospel. It points to the gospel. It's an implication of the gospel. But caring for others is not the gospel. That's not the good news that we have to offer. We're not offering people a band-aid solution that they can have food and clothing in this life and then one day they'll meet Jesus as judge and they're still guilty before him. We want to point people towards Jesus' work of dealing with their bigger problem. So we share the good news of Jesus' kingdom, his solution to spiritual poverty, always open to doing good, and we do good always with the hope of sharing our faith. We never divorce the two. Remember that seeing people come to Christ in the midst of suffering and injustice is to do the greatest good we ever could do. Today, God's present provision for the poor is us, his church. Secure in the knowledge of our eternal riches, freeing us up to extend generosity to all in need, all the while praying and thanking God for his provision. We're going to spend some time praying in a moment, but we're going to pause now and take some questions. I think Ming's going to come up and make sure that I answer the questions. 
Is that right? Yes, yes. Thanks for, thanks for the great talk, Lachlan. So we're going to be tackling some of the questions. So there's some great ones that have been coming in. Uh, the first one is, how is God loving by leaving people in poverty? Mm. How is our God loving by leaving people in poverty now? What's love? A lot of songs been written about that. Uh, love is seeing what people need and working for their ultimate good. Uh, God sees our need better than we do. And if someone staying in poverty helps them to find that bigger spiritual need that they have, coming to Christ, then that is good. Uh, it's not the way that it should have been originally. It's not that poverty is somehow itself an innate good. Poverty and that lack of provision is not a good, but it has achieved a good end. And so God uh, can be loving by, in the midst of that poverty, pointing someone to Christ and then growing and refining their trust in Christ in the midst of this time. I, I don't know if the person who's asked this has been to a place where they've witnessed poverty I think it's wonderful and amazing to have the opportunity to meet Christians who are living in some of the tougher places in the world to live and to see their robust trust in God who loves them. Uh, They're not asking this question. They know that God loves them. They've seen it in what Christ has done for them in dying to take away the penalty for their sin and offering them this eternal hope that no one can take away from them. So God is loving in offering us something beyond death that will last forever, so much longer than this short life. And in all sorts of circumstances, he helps us to continue to cling to that hope rather than clinging to this world. Thanks. Our next question is, if the cause of human poverty is selfishness and greed, why do we need religion to solve it? Why don't we just legislate better social care? Hmm. I don't think you need religion. Again, I don't know who's asked this question. uh, Words can be used differently. Depending how you're using the word religion, I don't think we need religion to solve it. If you're picturing at that point organized religion and hierarchical systems of religious leaders, uh, the sad reality is that even amongst organized religion in the world, corruption has come in. And uh, for friends of mine that have traveled to, say, Vatican City, uh, they've seen, yeah, just the... the horrendous way that religion hasn't actually solved poverty in that place. Uh, so organised religion, I don't think, is the solution. But what we do need is a change of heart. Uh, we do need God to do a work in us to take away that selfishness and greed. Because otherwise, whatever progress we make won't be complete. If we continue to believe that this life is all that there is, then that will limit the amount that we're willing to give up for others. If we don't believe that God's secured for us eternal riches in the age to come, then we're going to be limited to continue to seek out enough comfort for ourselves. Yes, we might give up some, but we won't go all the way to give up at all. We won't go the way to give up our lives because that's all that we have if we don't have a hope in Christ. So legislating better social care would be good. And God has given governments with different responsibilities. And across the globe, we see different ways that nations have tried to bring this about. I think interestingly, though, uh, you see that it's the nations that have had 
Christian heritage that are doing the best job of this uh, and that as nations like New Zealand are moving away from our Christian heritage, some of the systems we've had in place for social care have been called into question and it's wondering, should we continue with this? Uh, I trust that that trend will continue and that more and more for New Zealand it will be the church again that is called to pick up and look after the vulnerable in society. Uh, We'll see what happens there in New Zealand. So I don't think we need to organise religion, but we do need God to solve that deeper spiritual poverty in order to see substantial change come. Thanks, helpful, helpful. Um, Our next question is, are the laws from Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus mentioned in the sermon Mm. still relevant today? And how should Israel's laws shape our Mm. laws today? Mm. Great question. Like I said, a bit towards the end, so maybe this came through before then, uh, we don't live under those laws as law for us now. So that nation of Israel was God's kind of object lesson, his example. It was set in a particular time and context and the laws were for a particular purpose. So we don't live under them as law. Through Christ, Jesus has fulfilled that law. We now live in the age of the Spirit where by God's Spirit, pointing us to the example of Christ, we seek to love all as we love God. Uh, But they are still relevant. Just to say that we don't live under them as law doesn't mean that they're of no use to us. Uh, As we saw, the laws show us God's character. We saw those statements of what God is like through the law. And God doesn't change. So that's still relevant for us today. Now, interestingly... As you hit the New Testament, again, not sure how familiar you would, will be with the story, but uh, Jesus, first of all, came to the Jews, the Israelites, to call them back and to show them as the fulfillment of the law that they knew. And then the message went to non-Israelite people. Uh, you find in Galatians, a letter that Paul wrote to a Gentile church, a non-Jewish church, uh, he's kind of defending the fact, and this had to happen amongst the early church, a defense of the fact that the good news of Jesus has to go to the non-Jews. And as he defends that, he says that the Jews were happy for this to happen. All that they told us was to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Uh, I think it's Galatians 2, verse 10. Fascinating little line that Paul throws away there. It shows you that out of all of that law, uh, there is something about this heart of care and concern that reflects the heart that God has for people. And so we're not under it as law, but it's definitely still relevant. And for us as non-Israelites, the the character that we see there of God has to be played out in our lives. Should that shape our laws today? Uh, I'll defer that to the political scientists amongst us. I'm not a political scientist. I'm not an economist. I hope we have some in church who are studying those things. If you're trying to think through what you should study at university, hey, it would be worthwhile to do that. We need good Christian thinkers in politics, in economics, uh, in development studies. So do have a look and think through Uh, the place that government can have in providing for the poor. Uh, One of the organisations that I'm a big fan of is International Justice Mission that across the globe is seeking to bring down the level of corruption amongst governments because corruption is one of the biggest continuers of poverty. Uh, And so organisations like that that recognise God's heart for the poor and, and go and work to go, well, let's actually try to help governments be concerned for everyone, not just for themselves. I think that's answered the question. Uh, so this one's more of an application one. Uh, what should a church do to help the poor? Is it the church's mission to do so? What does that mm. practically look like for us? Mm. Uh, again, words have meaning. It depends what you mean by a church. Um, if a church is the gathering of Christians together on a Sunday evening, like we're doing now, uh, 
then we have a particular function as we come together of building one another up around the Word of God to equip one another to go out and live the Christian life from Monday to Saturday. That's what we're doing as we do here. This is kind of the halftime break. We gather together, we build up, we equip. Let's go and now be on our mission of the church together. The church's mission is not ultimately to help the poor. Like we've seen tonight, there's a bigger problem. The bigger task of the church that we're equipping one another to do is to go and proclaim the good news that Jesus is King and call people to repent and submit to Him as their King. But as we take on that task, we do it with the character of God. So it's important to not get those two confused. The task is the proclamation that Jesus is King, but then the character that we bear is the very character of Christ. So what should a church do to help the poor? Well, I want to say it's what are we as Christians doing to help the poor? It's kind of on us all together individually and then coming together as we can to see is there stuff that's better for us to do as a group, better reach that we can have if we organise together. Now, that's not going to be the responsibility of the pastors that have been freed up. Pastors who have been freed up by a church are freed up to teach the Word of God and to pray, to equip people to go on and live this Christian life. But if you've got ideas about how we can have a better impact into helping those around us, that'd be wonderful. Uh, Remember our first priority is within the local church. So if you're here tonight and and you are struggling for food or clothing, uh, it'd be good for someone to know that. That shouldn't be the case for long. Uh, Our key structure for that to be dealt with is amongst our connect groups that meet midweek where you're known by a smaller group of people uh, so that if you ever do fall upon hard financial times, they know you, you can easily share with them your circumstances and they can rally together to help you out. Uh, beyond that, there's all sorts of things that we could do. And again, it's a matter of figuring out what's most effective, what's most helpful for the long run. Uh, and if you've got good ideas, if you've got that kind of mind on you that uh, thinks that way, come and let's chat and let's figure out how we can do this. But keep in mind the main task, once we're outside of the local church, has to be the proclamation of Jesus. If someone has food and clothing, but they're guilty before God, then it's like eating one meal and then not eating for the rest of your life. Uh, That one meal is not really going to be worth it. Uh, Jesus as King and the proclamation of Jesus as King is the church's mission. Before jumping to the next question, I want to Mm. flesh this out a bit more. Mm. Uh, So you are part of this church. So what are you doing uh, to live this out? What are some practical things that you are doing yourself? Yes. It's kind of a hard question, right? Because Jesus will say in Matthew 6, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing when you give. Uh, So how much do you say? Um, Helpful tips for us. See see it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it is worthwhile to familiarize yourself with the reality of global poverty and get involved at some level uh, with being a solution there. So different child sponsorship programs. I, so I worked for World Vision for a time, which was great. That's why that's part of my passion. Um, but now I've kind of switched away from World Vision because they've lost that edge of proclaiming Jesus as king alongside their development work. But an organization like Tear Fund uh, that is proclaiming Jesus as king while providing the food and clothing for a child and, and breaking that poverty cycle, wonderful thing to be involved in. Uh, you know, I can give you the whole spiel about how cheap it is and how it is manageable even as a student. Uh, Something like that is worthwhile. Um, Not as a substitute for giving to the local church. Get your giving priorities right there. 
but as an additional act. Uh, alongside that, I think it's just the circumstances of life. It's if there is someone in your connect group that comes to you and says, look, I actually don't have enough money for food this week. You go, all right, here's 20 bucks. You know, let's get you sorted out. Here's 50 bucks. Let's work there. Why don't you come over and eat with me? Uh, why don't you come and stay with me for a couple of nights? Let's sort this out. Uh, if it's someone else that you meet in church, uh, it's, it's offering those offhand things that will be needed from time to time and helping them get set up with life. And sometimes it takes time. Uh, might take three months, might take six months. Very thankful for people within our church that have opened up their homes for situations like that and gone, okay, we recognise that you don't have money now, you're looking for work, why don't you come and live with us, stay there for six months, get life back on track. Uh, that's the kind of stuff we can be doing within ourselves, amongst ourselves, with the resources that we have uh, that will see good, good change happen. Yeah. Helpful, yep. Uh, so this is last question, uh, one that I can relate to as well. Is it okay not to give to the poor people because you feel your money will be wasted on drugs and other similar things? Yeah, this is one of those tough circumstances of the society that we live in now and the availability and that of drugs and alcohol. Uh, there, are, there are good ways around this concern. Uh, if you're talking about giving to someone that you've met in the street... Um, Remember that you're seeking to tell them about Jesus as well, so start a conversation with them and get to know their story. Often that's actually more powerful than the money that they might be asking for. Uh, and sometimes that will reveal what they're after. So I think of one time when I tried to do that and the guy got really offended. He said, how dare you ask me these personal questions about my life? Well, you asked me for some money, okay. I just thought I was reciprocating the kind of personal question. Uh, but he was really angry about that. And that showed me that he wasn't genuinely actually in need for these things. Uh, but if you've got the time, go and... I, I think of a great story where a businessman was going out for his lunch and a homeless guy in the street asked him for some money and he said, actually, why don't you just come join me for lunch? And they chatted for half an hour uh, and across that lunchtime, this guy's life was changed because the businessman took that time not just to give away some money but to go, let me invest into you a little bit more uh, and a life was changed. So it's an understandable concern. You don't want to be perpetuating people's addictions. Uh, you don't want to be perpetuating drug and alcohol use. Uh, but that's not everyone's story. And so don't hide behind that as an excuse to do nothing. Get to know people as you have the opportunity. Uh, and know what the systems are around New Zealand as well. Uh, because there are good systems in place currently for those who might be living on the street. Uh, so make sure you're familiar with those, that you can point people to that as well and see what, what they're using from that. I know for some people there'll be reasons they don't want to avail themselves of those systems. Uh, there can be a sense of shame involved there. And you've got to love people and talk them through with that. Uh, but yeah, there's a whole bunch more that we could talk about there. Um, the heart that we have is to see people have food and clothing provided for and ultimately to have Jesus because he provides food and clothing not just for this life but for eternity. Thanks. Shall I pray? Yep. If you have any more questions that didn't get answered, feel free to come see Lachlan later and grill him. But yeah, he'll pray for us. Let's pray. Loving God, you have made all people in your image. You care for the poor and the distressed. We pray that you would make us a just society where the rights of all are acknowledged and upheld, where those who are oppressed are made free and where corruption has no place. 
Give companies, social institutions and governments the desire to act for the good of all rather than for the advantage of the few. And Father, we thank you so much for dealing with our spiritual poverty. Thank you that you've taken away our guilt for selfishness and greed and our guilt for rebelling against you. Thank you for your invitation into eternal, inexhaustible riches. Please empower us to live out your character of concern for the poor and needy. And please hasten the day when Jesus will return, when he'll come to establish justice, to end poverty once and for all, when he'll come as the king to reign forever. For the glory of his name. Amen.